0: Welcome to the US Max Today podcast produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, US Max fellow and PhD candidate in history at UC San Diego, Kevin Aguilar, discusses Cardenas' historical legacy in his talk titled, Cardenas was calling this race, class, and settlement in Mexican and Spanish Excel imaginaries.
1: to the center for hosting me and also the center for comparative immigration studies for also providing support for this past academic year as well as everyone that came i really appreciate and excited to hear your feedback this presentation is based on the second chapter of my doctoral dissertation and it's the very very early draft of it so any comments would be really really helpful about figuring out where to go with this and at the end of the presentation, I'll give a kind of overview of what the dissertation is looking like so that you could see how this fits in because it, on its own, it is, a, you know, kind of a standalone piece that I'm hoping to use perhaps for a job talk in the future. But I think it helps to kind of get the full grasp of the project at the end rather than at the beginning because you can kind of see it from there. And unfortunately, as a historian, we tend to read things, so unfortunately I'm going to have to brace that. But um, I have some nice photos that will be good to kind of go back and forth. And just to start off, this photo is actually from one of the colonies that I'll be talking about in Santa Clara, Chihuahua. That's when uh, the Spanish exiles arrive there, and they are looking over like agricultural maps to figure out like where's the best places to farm. So it's kind of, kind of indicative photo of what these encounters are going to happen once they arrive. But this this presentation is focusing on the months leading up to before the exiles arrive, just to give some. So on June 13, 1939, 21-year-old Claudio Esteva Fabrigat arrived to the port of Veracruz alongside 1,600 Spanish exiles after a 19-day voyage at sea. Like many of the passengers, Esteva spent the past three years fighting in the Spanish Civil War and the last six months in a French internment camp before receiving political asylum in Mexico. Though safe from the ascent of the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, Esteva and his compatriots found themselves in the middle of yet another political conflict. In the wake of the recent Cristero Wars, the thwarted uprising of General Saturnino Cedillo, and contentious presidential election on the horizon, some of the country saw Garnas' initiative to protect quote-unquote Spanish Reds as further provocation towards civil war. Shortly after Esteva was relocated to Mexico City, He and other exiles were informed by delegates from the Mexican Communist Party. The presidential opposition candidate, Juan Andreo Almazán, was brought in an imminent coup attempt against the president and his allied institutions. For several nights, Esteva stood guard with hundreds of other exiles outside the Casa de la Agrarista, the National Center of Campesino Unions and Agrarian Leagues, awaiting word from their Mexican comrades who were to distribute weapons in the event of an armed attack. Though the coup never took place, the refugees stood by side, Mexican unionists, campesinos, and radicals to protect the Cardenas government elections of the incident, Esteva recalls feeling a sense of obligation to defend the reforms of the Mexican Revolution, stating, Cardenas was calling us, he trusted us, and for that we were there for him. This paper is based on a chapter of my doctoral dissertation that examines how Mexicans and Spanish exiles reconceptualized notions of race, class, and revolution that were often at odds with the state's refugee initiative. (laughs) Despite numerous studies on Mexican diplomatic and humanitarian efforts to support the Second Spanish Republic and its exiles, the state's promotion of the refugee initiative as a racial and economic modernization project has received little attention. In contrast to the state, many Mexican citizens and Spanish exiles envisioned the initiative as a means to expand radical reform and to further what both groups saw as an ongoing social revolution. By examining state racial discourses, oral testimonies, community petitions, and the activities of exiles in transit to Mexico, I demonstrate the degree in which internationalist consciousness permeated among the Mexican-Spanish laboring classes and how such perceptions complicated the state's aspirations to use the exiles as agents of economic and racial modernization. More broadly, the study seeks to contribute to discussions on migration, exile, and decolonization due to the particularly unique circumstances in which Mexico's policies towards Spanish exiles emerged, The policy represented one of the first times that a decolonized nation provided asylum for refugees originating from its former colonial metropole. As such, this research provides insights as to how different sectors of society rethink the legacies of colonialism, decolonization, and nationalism in the aftermath of global humanitarian (coughs) crises and social revolutions. It also contributes to a growing field of research that examines how Latin American countries responded to the consequences of the Spanish Civil War, as well as World War II. For the sake of time, I'll be reading short sections of a longer dissertation chapter that looks at the political imaginaries of Cardenas' government, Mexican communities, and Spanish exiles leading up to the arrival of the refugees in June 1939. The first discussions of Spaniards migrating en masse to Mexico began in 1937. Just a year into the Spanish Civil War, following the ascent of the communist-dominated government of Juan Negrín, socialist politicians in Spain received verbal approval from Cárdenas that Mexico would provide refuge for Spanish Republicans. And so this is in the event that a lot of the more liberal and socialist sectors of the Spanish population were afraid of what was actually starting to occur, which was an adjacent Spanish revolution. So when the Spanish Civil War breaks out in 1936, almost immediately people start collectivizing lands, and there's demands on the Republican government to be even more radical rather than tempering back. So. This discussion is based around a concern of what will happen if it gets to a point of social revolution. Other Republicans need to leave, and so not necessarily against the the expansion of the fascists. By 1938, with conditions worsening throughout Spain, hundreds of thousands of Spaniards fled their country to seek asylum in French and North African internment camps. Consequently, the Mexican government proposed an initiative to grant up to 50,000 Spaniards asylum, regardless of their political affiliation. In total, approximately 20,000 Spanish refugees and international combatants would ultimately make their way to Mexico and be granted asylum between 1939 and 1950. Despite the Cardenas administration's humanitarian gesture, the prospect of relocating thousands of Spaniards heightened tensions between Mexicans that supported the government's various political reforms and those that oppose them right-wing presidential opponent Juan Andreo Amasan and the growing fascist movement the Union Nacional Sinarquista both actively rejected the state's sanctuary proposal it was a growing state surveillance apparatus tracking Cárdenas's political opponents and the Sinarquista's relegated largely outside of electoral politics the administration focused its energies on formulating a utopic vision of refugees' assimilation to its popular base and elected officials. While the initiative was primarily framed based as a solution to a growing humanitarian crisis in Europe, it was also promoted as a state project that would both complement and expand various revolutionary reforms enacted under the Cardenas government. In an effort to curtail opposition of the refugee program, Cardenas officials framed the initiative to the public based on its prospective racial and economic benefits. And so, this is a really interesting little photo I found. Every six years after a presidency, they release their annual, like, this is what we did good. And this was one of the fictions that was used of all the resources that were sent to Spain during the Spanish Civil War and then also the Spanish exiles that are coming over. <laughs> to ensure that the refugees would not be seen as competitors for employment against the Mexican working class, the Cardenas administration established the Comité Técnico de Ayuda a los Republicanos Españoles, the CETARI, to coordinate the mass relocation of exiles to rural colonies. While the government did not want the exiles to threaten jobs of industrial workers, it did see Spaniards as prospective agents to incorporate, indigenous sectors of the population into a modern capitalist economy. Six major settlements located in various states were to be constructed in close proximity to indigenous communities in an effort to encourage racial intermixing as well as the establishment of ciudades agrícolas or agricultural cities which were to serve as industrial centers to pull subsistence farmers into industrial agricultural occupations. The Mexican government supported this line of eugenicist thinking, and in turn viewed refugees assimilation as one way to rectify the perceived social ills of native people. The state's utopic colonization initiative reflected settlement efforts dating back to the late 19th century, whereas Dolores Pladrugat suggests that the refugee initiative echoed the whitening efforts of immigrant settlement policies enacted in Colombia and other parts of Latin America. The comparison homogenizes the temporal and contextual variances of the discourses of mestizaje during the Cardenas era. Moreover, prior to 1939, the Cardenas administration oversaw some of the strictest immigration policies of the post-revolutionary era. The decision to permit Spanish exiles into the country therefore represented a marked shift both in state immigration policy as well as in whom the state saw as quote-unquote desirable candidates for acculturation of the Mexican society. In the months leading up to the exile's arrival, state officials utilized the racial discourses of mestizaje to promote the per- prospective benefits of Spanish refugee assimilation. General Antolin Soria, an ardent cardenista and supporter of the refugee initiative, published a, a book of essays detailing the advances that Spanish immigration could bring to the nation. Responding to the concerns of Spaniards' racial impacts on Mexican society, he argued, quote, the refugee should be perceived as a brother, which is not difficult to perceive since Mexican mestizaje has the antecedent of." Spanish blood. We speak the same language and in general terms we have the same beliefs, the same customs, and the same ideals. There's no reason to establish distinctions between us, therefore the ideal is parity, balance, and proportionality. In line with the racial discourses of the time, Cardenisa officials upheld the belief that Spaniards pre-existing relations to Mexico, particularly through <coughs> colonialism, allowed them to seamlessly integrate into Mexican society. Manuel Gamio, one of the preeminent intellectual proponents of Indianismo, also validated such claims when assuring the advantages of Spanish immigration to Mexico. Whereas other imperial European nations perceived indigenous peoples as inferior, Gamio argued that Spaniards quote, consider us indigenous peoples humanely and do not fear to cross their blood with ours. Similarly, government officials believe the Spaniards' historical legacy of racial intermixing both in the Iberian Peninsula and in the Americas could be advantageous to advance the state's efforts to promote mestizaje. In contrast to earlier revolutionary nationalist condemnation of Spain's economic, racial, and cultural influence on Mexican society, Karen NISA officials sought to reconcile the historical legacies of colonial subjugation and racial stratification by viewing mestizaje as a resolution to future instances of racial inequality. This is a famous photo of Cardenas talking with campesinos while eating tortillas. The Cardenas government's racial imaginaries were framed not only as a solution to the ongoing humanitarian crisis that was emerging following the end of the Spanish Civil War, but as a way to resolve domestic matters relating to racial and economic inequality. These discourses, often developed and defined by anthropologists and politicians and not by indigenous communities described the plight of native peoples as a consequence of centuries of social and economic disparity. As such, indigenous people's integration into national economies and institutions served as a means to, for the state to resolve what it saw as the root to the quote-unquote Indian question. Subsequently, the ideas, needs, and demands of indigenous peoples were secondary and often absent in state racial imaginaries. Though some historians, such as Alexander Estacion, have argued that the Cardenas era represented a marked shift in uh, towards a re- more radical and pluralistic phase of Indianismo, the state's racial aspirations for Spanish colonization demonstrates the continuation of past immigration policies, which prioritized the assimilation of indigenous peoples into Mexican society as a means to develop what they envision as a modern citizen. As Guillermo de la Peña and Rebecca Earl argued, quote, the the goal of Indianismo under Cardenas was therefore not to Indianize Mexico, but Mexicanize the Indian. For state officials, the initiation of such an endeavor was not done in a systemic way, or systematic way, rather embodied the state's hope that the Spanish refugees' presence could rectify broader social and economic disparities by their very presence and their future mestizo descendants. So the idea is not that they're going to somehow force Spanish exiles to miscegenate with indigenous people. It's the idea if we just put them close enough that it'll just kind of naturally happen and very similarly to other immigration initiatives with Europeans and specifically r- religious minorities in the north of Mexico the idea is like we'll give the immigrants certain privileges that seem like they have their own autonomy but the idea is that their s- their children will be integrated into the mexican society eventually so it's all kind of a long game idea that to create citizens you have to have those, that initial generation is going to be kind of exempt from certain demands. At that time it's, it's difficult to discern because the census data and a lot of the records was based off of language and so it's, it's actually extremely our pinpoint it'd the exact number, but the general argument is that the majority of people were indigenous in Mexico still. It's just that most of them were probably integrated in some way that they spoke Spanish, maybe partially speaking indigenous languages, but it was, it's pretty unclear. And unfortunately, that's like a huge thing that we wish we knew, but it's been pretty hard to discern. This is a really hard photo to see, but it's a protest done by the, it says the Agariza youth of Queretaro condemned the inva- fascist invasion in Spain. And you can see like the CTMs, the banners in the backgrounds, and this is pretty common throughout Mexico in the months leading up to the Spaniards' arrival. For many Mexican citizens, the government's support for Spanish exiles reignited ongoing debates regarding the legacy and continuity of the nation's social revolution. The latter years of the Cardenas administration have widely been associated. with the de-escalation of the government's most radical tendencies. Both supporters and opponents saw the refugee initiative as complementary to revolutionary social projects. For those supportive of the Cardenas government, the state's refugee program granted a political opening to reassert radical initiatives onto the state through the relocation and assimilation of refugee communities. In the months leading up to the Spaniards' arrival, numerous citizens, communities, labor unions, agrarian leagues, and radical political organizations expressed their support for the initiative. More than just affirming a paternalistic relationship to the state, These radical sectors organized fundraisers, resources, and demonstrated other forms of solidarity outside of the state's institutions. Many of the gestures also complicated and contradicted the Mexican government's racial and economic initiative for the exiled pueblos throughout the country, many of which maintain large indigenous populations, petitioned the government to receive and integrate the Spaniards into the, their communities and most significantly onto their communal land holdings. Devoid of all references of racial miscegenation, indigenous and mestizo campesinos believed that the refugees' assimilation into rural society would encourage the industrialization of the ajito system and further socialize Mexico's internal markets. Rural communities envisioned the insertion of literate, skilled Spanish campesinos and laborers as a way to solidify the ajito system as an integrated economic system that expanded the community's role in determining national Progress And so this is kind of the interesting thing is there's a general belief throughout Mexico that the exiles coming over are literate, often agricultural workers or working class people. And that's true. They were. But the literacy and what occupations they had was actually very vague because once the exiles came and they wrote in their immigration forms what their occupation was, sometimes they lied and said, like, I'm like a skilled, like, factory or a tractor driver. And really, they were just like that, and sometimes not even literate. And so it's hard to use the data that's been given about the occupations and social profiles of the exiles, because a lot of them purposely lied, not necessarily to get advantages in certain economic things, but more of a fear of being found out of what their political ideologies were, Mm -hmm. because there's still this ongoing concern about certain sectors of the Republican movement, especially anarchists and leftists, that they're going to be discriminated by either the people that are kind of developing the, qualifications for the exiles to be sent over or by the Mexican government. There's still a little uncertainty, so they tend to lie and say, oh, I'm in the Socialist Party, when actually they're anarchists, or, oh, I'm a skilled agricultural laborer, when they're actually, they've worked in factories, so it can really vary in what they saw. In one request made by an ejido committee in Tetetla, Oaxaca in June 1939, ejidatarios petitioned the Cetari to send 20 Spanish campesino families to their community in exchange the refugees would be given parcels of their communal land holdings. The petition explained that after a recent onslaught of assassinations and violent reprisals against the ejidatarios, only 60 farmers remained to work in their ejido that was initially parceled out for 125 people. The community hoped the Spanish families, along with a number of single persons, could relocate and help the f- work the fields, establish schools, and construct new facilities for the town. Rather than building new rural industrial centers to bring mestizo indigenous camp- campesinos into a modern capitalist system, Mexico's rural laboring classes place their demands on the state for specific material objectives that reimagine the refugee initiative as a means to embolden revolutionary agrarian reforms. So they really want to kind of create this internal market through the ejido system that will actually benefit without needing to be dependent on export economies for food and resources. In those sense, so it is kind of a proto-isi idea, but it's got none of the isi notions to it and it's actually objecting to some of the more prominent isi ideas of of these kind of agricultural cities as a way to kind of push industrialized development they want to keep it at the ajilo level while the idea of mexican citizens granting spanish exiles the lands that have been expropriated from spanish immigrants may seem paradoxical a lot of the land holdings that were expropriated were owned by spaniards initially the act epitomized a crucial aspect of racial radical popular consciousness that had emerged during the mexican revolution this is my favorite thing I found in the archive. Unfortunately, the Basque always are the butt of the joke, so you got this little sad Basque bakery owner. And so, throughout the Spanish Civil War, Mexican labor unions, agrarian leagues, and political organizations distinguished between Spanish Republicans and earlier Spanish immigrants, most of which supported the military coup of Francisco Franco. Political propaganda distributed during strikes of the bread industry, the sector monopolized by Spanish immigrants for decades, distinguished between Espanoles, who were defined as Republican patriots, and cachopinas, the long standing pejorative used to define exploitative Spanish emigres who were deemed Francoist traitors. While such views were not universal throughout Mexican society, they demonstrated how workers and peasants defined racial identity through specific historical contexts and political ideologies. Despite months of persistent petitions by the Hilo Committee of the Tetla to the Cetari and the Ministry of the Interior, their requests went unanswered. The archives of the Cetari indicate that out of the dozens of requests from other communities to integrate exiles into rural Mexican Enclaves, the vast majority went unanswered or outright rejected. In one instance, the Cetare's president, Jose Puche, responded to the Peasant Regional Committee of Comateco, Veracruz to deny the request to shelter 300 peasant families, citing that the refugees were to be relocated to an agrarian colony in Santa Clara, Chihuahua. So, that very first photo is where they were supposed to be sent. Despite Puche's claim, only 500 individuals, not families, were relocated to the Santa Clara colony, and by 1945, the colony would be entirely abandoned due to lack of state support. As I will discuss in greater detail in my dissertation, the Mexican state's public platitudes of solidarity towards the refugees and their integration into rural communities actively thwarted community endeavors to contribute to the refugees' integration. The state's apprehensions were at least in part to have broader concerns of how communities would respond to the refugees. In one declassified secret police report, an inspector expressed concern to a superior official following the announcement that 300 Spanish communists and 1,500 foreign participants of the international brigades would be granted a large hacienda in the frontier of Tamaulipas. The inspector feared that the local campesinos would see the gesture with quote-unquote malos ojos, insinuating a broader uncertainty as to how local communities would respond to the state's initiative as well as the Spaniards' relocation. Such fears, however, miscalculated the growing popular support for the refugees amongst various sectors of the Mexican working class and peasantry. And really this gets down to the fact that there's not a clear political landscape understood by the state. They don't know, like, if they send them to Tamaulipas, is it going to be better than sending them to Jalisco? Most likely, Jalisco would be not a great place since the Cristiano War had just been kind of wrapping up. But there is this kind of idea that, okay, well, how are we going to find out where to send these folks? And a lot of times, governors would request it. So the state governors would send in, saying we can take X amount of people, but the actual decision of what lands that are given is completely uncertain to me. Like, I'm still trying to figure that out. Like, why this land over some other land? And I'm trying to go through the Agrarian Archive to figure out if there's community Mm. protests against this or support, like, I can only find it in the Cetare's archives. That was made by one of the artist unions in Mexico City that would then, they would print it out and then they would give it to like the CETME or to uh, other, the Este So like the various different agrarian and labor unions, so this was plastered throughout Mexico City and Veracruz. Like they, there's some references in it that, and I'd find it in different archival sources of different states. Like, so it was pretty well sent out. distributed from a review of petitions to the mexican government regarding the spanish refugees most opposition to the exiles came from conservative unions and far-right political organizations controlled by middle and upper class mexicans and spanish immigrants closely aligned to spanish commercial interests and supported the franco regime labor associations often affiliated with the regional confederation of mexican workers the crom actively rejected the government's proposal to bring in the exiles labeling them as quote-unquote communist fugitives vexatious assassins and invaders In the case of the Tamaulipas incident, the largest grievances against the exile's relocation did not come from local campesinos, but the fascist organization La Vanguardia Nacionalista de Acción, which is a pro-Francoist organization based in Veracruz. Opposition to the refugees did not reflect a resurgence of anti-Spanish sentiment, which some scholars have claimed, but instead embodied the formulation of competing notions of desired political affinities between Mexico and Spain. As Kirsten Weld suggests, the Spanish Civil War and its consequences, quote, served as a living metaphor for those who disagreed passionately about how to organize societies, and ultimately served as an inspiration, moral lesson, usable past and cautionary tale all at once. For many Mexican citizens, the refugee initiative was a reflection of the, on the ongoing tensions permeating throughout the country as much as it embodied potential solutions to ongoing social problems. Some petitions to the Cardenas, uh, to Cardenas challenged the state's perceptions that the exiles represented a solution to the country's racial inequalities. In one such correspondence, Caralampio Martinez of Guanajuato accused the president of turning the country into a, quote, garbage dump because it cannot be anything else uh, if it allows Europe to dump their worst men into our country." He chastised the humanitarian support for the militant Reds, while poverty prevails amongst our humble Indians. Opponents of the initiative also noted concerns regarding racial intermixing. Roman Badillo, a lawyer based out of Mexico City, wrote to Cardenas, stressing his fears that the racial inferiority of Mexicans, not Spaniards, would have damning repercussions for the country's future generations. He argued, quote, the racial superiority of the Spaniards over the Mexicans is physical and mental and is above all a manifestation of the Spaniards being the conquerors of Mexico. He continued to argue that Spaniards, regardless of their political affiliations, would feel superior to Mexicans and will, quote, try to subjugate our uh, humiliated people, exploit us, and invalidate our revolutionary conquests. For the upper echelons of Mexican society, the influx of Spaniards exacerbated long-standing racial and class anxieties that they felt delegitimized their claims as heirs to the Mexican Revolution. Yet for those galvanized by Cardenas' sweeping reforms, the refugee initiative provided a means to both support the growing humanitarian crisis in Spain, while asserting demands on the state to expand over other revolutionary initiatives. Nonetheless, the Refugee Initiative invoked deep-seated concerns relating to the future of Mexican society, not just within political terms, but also in relation to various racial discourses that sought to define Mexicans within the context of its colonial past and post-colonial future so this is from one of the boats that brought over the exiles in june of 1939 it actually kind of gives passengers an understanding of where they're at each day so uh, kind of a voyage and so this next section is entirely about is based around these interviews that were done with exiles as well as newspapers that were published on the boats explaining like the day-to-day behaviors and actions of the refugees and so we have some really great visual materials from this because they're they're constantly making cartoons and putting pictures up so it's a really elaborate thing to think about for you know being on a boat It's like three weeks to a month so it's a good enough time that maybe you want a newspaper yeah and then they usually stopped in the Dominican Republic or Cuba so that, yeah. those are the three major stops that they would go to at the same time as the Mexican at the same time as the Mexican government and local communities discussed the ideals for the refugee colonies, the refugees themselves debated how best to serve the Mexican people. After spending months in French internment camps, approximately 8,000 Spaniards boarded vessels funded by the Spanish Republican government and set sail for Mexico during the summer of 1939. Much like their experiences on the front lines, passengers were placed in close proximity with compatriots from different parts of Spain, with different lived experiences, from different political ideologies, and also different languages. So it's not, there's a lot of issues of, People not being able to understand each other very well. Though lacking space for large gatherings, passengers utilized their time at sea to organize conferences to discuss the best ways to support the Mexican people and their ongoing revolution. On any given day, conferences were being held between teachers, workers, peasants, and professionals conducted in Spanish, Catalan, and other regional languages to discuss how best to use their technological skills and trades towards the labor, agrarian, and economic reforms of the Mexican Revolution. In an effort to educate passengers about the country, they were going to be residing in, Spanish and Mexican officials published the daily newspapers to give updates of events on board, as well as information about Mexican society and politics. While the publications encouraged the refugees to fully integrate into Mexican life and to be appreciative of the country's support of the Second Republic, they were not to view themselves as permanent residents, much less as potential Mexican citizens. Quote, you are not new Mexicans, one article warned, but Spaniards that will always be Spaniards in Mexico and all over the world. Other materials were more direct. Prior to their disembarkation, passengers received brochures detailing what the Mexican and Spanish governments expected of the refugees. In it, they warned that not to meddle in national politics, nor should they reflect on their past experiences during the Civil War. Officials recommended that passengers, quote, forget and to not criticize the mistakes of the past and to bury the hatred that exists in your land while in exile and wherever you are. And they go even a little bit farther than that, where they say, you can't be involved in national politics. But the way that you can be involved in national politics is to talk about how great Cardenas is, and like how you're really appreciative of everything. And so it's a little bit of a mixed bag, like, and it's gonna get much more complicated when the exiles actually start becoming Mexican citizens, which Cardenas permits in, in 1940. But for many exiles that were politicized during the Civil War and who witnessed the importance of international solidarity to the struggle, national identity was a fluid concept forged by changing social conditions and circumstances. Reflecting on his time at sea, Claudio Esteba Fabregat recalled his growing affinity to Mexico. Spain was over, he recalled seeing it as lost to the ravages of fascism. Like many other young militants, he naturalizes a Mexican citizen to demonstrate his appreciation of the federalist government and the Mexican people for their support. In lieu of conflicting expectations of the Mexican and Spanish Republican governments, refugees shared many of the same aspirations as those communities that petitioned in favor of their integration. Upon their arrival to Mexico, passengers were required to fill out migration forms for the Mexican-Spanish governments. When asked what they wished to do for work while living in exile, passengers were nearly unanimous in their responses. Rather than seeing their migration as an opportunity for social mobility, the vast majority of them wrote that they wanted to continue the labor they did in Spain while doing whatever would most benefit the Cárdenas government and the Mexican Revolution. And so some people just literally wrote anything that will help the Mexican Revolution. Like it was a very, very ardent like idea. By the end of 1940, approximately 80% of Spanish refugees naturalized as Mexican citizens, most of which would ne- never return to their country of origin. For the first 8,000, I think it was around 40% women and 60% men. And of that, I think there was about 23% were children, like under the age of 18. And it can go into some of the demographic issues that kind of propose really interesting interventions in the, in the q So for refugees like Esteban Fabrique, who spent his nights, first nights in Mexico preparing to defend the Cardenas government, The struggle for evolution at home was to be taken up abroad, so there's, like, no distinction. Like, a lot, it is different amongst older generations. People that were involved with the Republican government that came over to Mexico, they tend to be like, all right, we're out. Like, we're done with political involvement, and they are the ones that I think are most commonly remembered because this is the idea that the exiles are neither here nor there. They're kind of in between spaces. Younger people that were politicized during the Civil War or through the act of exile have like kind of a a bone to pick, and they feel like, okay, we fought a revolution in Spain. We need to now fight it in Mexico. And so they they take these ideas uh, back or to, to Mexico, and the few that go back to Spain will also be kind of remembering that. So they often talk about their... When they switch to Mexican citizenship, they feel like it was... Just obvious, like, well, we're in Mexico, we should be Mexican citizens, and when we go back to Spain, we'll be Spanish citizens. But our affinities lie in both countries, like they're appreciative of both, they're not viewed, it's more of a pragmatic view than some type of nationalist kind of memory. So in conclusion, this presentation has demonstrated how Mexican and Spanish conceptions of race and class affected state, community, and exile responses to the Cardenas administration's refugee initiative. To the Mexican government, exiles represented an industrious European immigrant population that would help racially and economically modernize the nation. For the Republican government in exile, they were to uphold the values and identities of their homeland and focus on their return. As I discuss in greater detail in my doctoral dissertation, neither of these expectations were fully met. With the end of the Cardenas administration, so too ended the state's racial project, ultimately leading to the dissolution of the exiles' rural colonies. Most refugees moved to urban centers and married amongst themselves. The state's inability or unwillingness to build a popular demands for racial integration rather than miscegenation demonstrated the Cardenas government's unwillingness to advance a more radical state initiative that prioritized the needs of rural communities. Nonetheless, the efforts made by both Mexican citizens and Spanish exiles to enact an alternative vision of the refugee initiative demonstrated how they interpreted the concepts of exile, citizenship, and revolutionary reform, both through and without the state's support. And so, lastly, I just kind of wanted to give an overview of how this all fits into the dissertation. I, I called the revolutionary encounters, Mexican communities and Spanish exiles, predominantly because I'm trying to kind of juxtapose this idea that this is an encounter with Spaniards again. When we talk about the encuentro, it's usually referring to the conquest. But this is a totally different scenario in a very different time and different social relations. And yet, despite the fact that a lot of newspaper editorials try to focus on this and talk about the colonial ramifications of letting the refugees in, that's really not what you're seeing on the ground, people are much more pragmatic about the purpose of this and the meaning of this, so while they're both trying to put demands on the state to expand their own reforms, they're also <coughs> adding on, and of course this is to be against fascism and the spread of fascism. Like, so there's these kind of revolutionary tendencies within the demands. Chapter 1 is going to give an overview of the origins of these popular communitarian traditions because I've found that as early as the mid-19th century there was these radical movements that were in conversation with each other that were not affiliated with like the liberal movements of the 19th century. They're explicitly anti-capitalist and they're actually starting to create early ideas of how to create immigration policies in very small hamlets of Mexican society because they're hearing and reading about these suppression of anarchists and communists in, in Europe. And so, and even in Asia and Latin America, one instance they actually talk about, it's in San Luis Potosi, they're calling for Asian, Latin American, and European immigrants to come and take over more lands as they started their rebellion. So it's a very early idea, but it really gets solidified during the Mexican revolution. Spaniards are very active in the revolution, helping some of the major political organizations like the Partido Liberal Mexicano. And it just continues going on. And I think a lot of that has just been understudied where we don't understand how important foreigners were to like the political ideologies and the political movements of the revolution. And so in that I also bring up some of the early discussions amongst leftist and anarchist groups about the Spanish Civil War and their early claims of kind of knowing that things aren't looking too good so we might need to bring them over but anarchist groups were particularly the most hostile towards the state's initiatives where there's a really great source where they say according to the Spanish anarchists who they were in constant discussion with the Mexican government in Spain according to them Cardenas is the best anarchist in Mexico like they, they really was a misunderstanding of where the revolution was in Mexico compared to what was going on in Spain. And you see this in the fact that in Spain during just months before the ex- like everyone's starting to leave the country, they're having celebrations to Mexican Independence Day, celebrating the fact that they kicked Spaniards out. And they also are, they talk about Vicente Guerrero as like the abolition of slavery. They're really very endearing to Spanish independence leaders, and then also they're starting to get an understanding of some of the revolutionary leaders like Ricardo Flores Magón, Emiliano Zapata, and Pancho Villa. And this is also done because Mexican diplomatic officials are going and talking to Spanish anarchists and communist groups much more than they are even the government of Spain. Like they're very in in touch with what's going on on the ground. Chapter 2 is what I've kind of focused on today. And I really use chapter one and two to discuss, like, because there's not a lot of interaction with Spaniards and Mexicans yet, a lot of this is imaginaries, like how they perceive their societies and what they want their societies to look like. But the rest of the dissertation focuses on the realities. What happens when these people get on the ground and start integrating and how does that kind of make those imaginaries more murky or complicated, and sometimes actually actualized in in various ways. And so chapter three, I look at these revolutionary encounters in the countryside, I focus on two of the colonies that the exiles are sent to, Uh, one is in Michoacán and the other one in Chihuahua, and I really discuss how the local conditions going on and the local issues based around the revolution is going to impact how easy or uneasy it's going to be for the exiles to assimilate. Chapter four looks at the encounters that occur in the city. So I focus on two factories that uh, the refugees were recruited to work in. One was the Volcano factory, which was owned by the Spanish Republican government. They were taking uh, used parts that like industrial parts to create weapons for World War II. And so they would even, they've got a couple of expropriated German U-boats that were on the coast of Mexico and they tore them down and like built new stuff to be sent to the European theater. As well as the Modelo Brewery Factory (laughs) factory, because it was owned by a Spanish immigrant who lived in Mexico much earlier and was an ardent Franco-sympathizer. And so it's a very unusual thing that he's like, yeah, I'll take all these red exiles. and (laughs) That was a big mistake because that was like one of the most dominant places for radical labor organizing in Mexico City. And what this chapter really focuses on is that I went to the Mexican Spanish Communist Party archives. I found nothing about any collaborations besides like platitudes like, oh, we support the exiles and we support Mexico. In interviews that were conducted in the 70s and 80s, I found out that that are now archived at the INA, Mm -hmm. that the two parties merged the minute that the exiles get get there. And it stays merged until 1943. But it's not done at the top level, it's done in the cells. And so cells of organizing that are going on through the country have Spanish exiles being incorporated in them. And so and they even become leaders in like mining, organizing in, in the north, and, and also in the Modelo Brewery factory in Volcano. And so it kind of tries to find to elaborate on these collaborations that it, technically, if you look just on paper, it's not there. But the participants are very actively saying, Yeah, we did. Do this. We didn't write it down because we were afraid that Article Thirty Three was going to be used against us. And so they—they're really, really cognizant of like, yeah, Cardenas was good to us. We're not too sure about the rest of them. And I'm writing a—I'm currently revising a journal article about the state surveillance of the exiles, and they had good reason to be concerned. Like this, the state was spying on their political activities the entire time. Not so much during Cardenas, but during the presidencies of. Avila like Camacho and Miguel Alamán, it was getting particularly hostile. And lastly, the final chapter examines like the actual political organizing between Mexicans and Spaniards and really focusing on what has been deemed by some scholars of the Latin Americanization of Spanish refugees, that they really take on discourses of Pan Americanism, anti imperialism and decolonization as discourses to define the ongoing struggles against Francoist Spain. And so they actually start claiming that Spain has been colonized by fascists and that the U.S. is helping with this by building military bases during the 50s and they're essentially calling for a reconceptualization of Latin America and Spain as united in anti-fascism or anti-imperialism. And I'm using sources that were found in Enrique and Teresa Palores Magón, two of anarchist veterans of the revolution served as leaders of spanish solidarity organizations Uh, i'm also looking at secret police records spanish cultural center records located in mexico and spain and various private archives from the international institute of social history in amsterdam so it, it really took having to go to all these different places to get this narrative figured out because if you just look at the mexican archives it only gives you one side of the story you have to kind of look at the spanish side as well and amsterdam houses all these materials that When groups thought that they were going to be suppressed, they sent it to this institute. And so that's where the Spanish anarchist archives are at for the CNT, as well as a lot of Mexican organizations early on. And it kind of ends in 1959 because a lot of these Mexican radicals and Spanish exiles are helping support various Latin American revolutionary insurrections, including the Cuban Revolution, where Spanish exiles are actually helping Fidel and Che learn how to use military weapons and military tactics so that when they leave, but I'm not going to go into Cuba because it's way too complicated, but it is just to kind of show, like, connecting these broader Latin American and Spanish collaborations. And so that's it. Thank you.
0: Listening to the US Mex Today podcast. The Center for US Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between the US and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.